Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hey, everyone. Hi, everybody. (laughs) It's been a long long time, and uh, we, I want to apologize on behalf of all three of us. We've just been super, super busy. And I hate that example. I hate that excuse because we're all super busy. But we've been like more busy than like regular people. So that's why we're here. And this is the... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, accept it. Accept it. This is. I mean, I I still refer to us as still living through a pandemic. Our lives are not 100% back to normal people. (laughs) Deal with it. (laughs) It's getting there though. So this is our season finale for the summer and we can all go off and... And we will be back next season. Yo, it's been so long since we've done this. How are you? But keep it brief. Yeah, I'm good. I'm very excited to be getting on the road again. You know, going? traveling is in my blood. And so I'm looking forward to heading to the East Coast, hopefully, in the All summer. Right. All right. We're all going to hang out. At some point. Yeah, we yeah. haven't talked about that in a while. Yeah, yeah at some so point. Yeah, we happening. should. Yeah. I will be in the D.C. area. Great. And I will come down to the D.C. area. And I will be in the D.C., Philadelphia, and New York and Boston area for the next. Trisha does the Northeast Corridor. I love it. And the, the, Acela, the Acela Corridor. You know what's so weird? Can I just make a confession? So this is a totally um, pandemic influence choice. I love the train. You all know I love the train. Yes, you I do. Can't see my tra- I can't see myself on the train right now. So I'm going to do the DC flight. I'm going to like just fly for like an hour. Oh, you're so glamorous. Look at you. Like, but I, listen, it's also because I have extra points from flights that were canceled last year. So I need to use them. But I was looking around and I was like, do I want to spend three hours enclosed in, in a space with people oh. or maybe an hour? <laughs> can, can, I, can I tell you, I took an Acela. This is my first time on a train since before the pandemic. I had to go up to Philly for a work meeting. And so I took the Acela. They have assigned seats now. Oh, I had never. So I was the idiot that like sat down and I noticed people were kind of like looking at seats and then moving on. I'm like, why don't they just sit there? Why don't they just sit there? And then like, I kind of hear someone say, oh, wait, are you in that seat? And I'm like, so I look at my ticket and I'm like, oh my God, I have an assigned seat. I was in the wrong car. I was in the total wrong (laughs) part of the train. I just felt like that guy. So I was like, are they assigning seat to, because they're doing capacity numbers? Is that what it is? I, I am guessing it was for distancing because they because oh. they did, they did capacity numbers before. I'm guessing they did it for distancing. Although, as you might imagine, you know, it wasn't well done. You had like two seats <laughs> both empty and then two <laughs> seats right next to each other. Um, and then I took the regular train back and that was still not a signed seat. So it was interesting. Okay. Interesting. I'm surprised, Trisha, that you want to... I get that you don't want to be in the enclosed space for longer, but I just feel like trains give a little bit more space because yeah, like the doors do. open, like there's more of an air exchange than what's happening on, I guess planes are always venting in new air, but there's something about a plane that just makes me feel like the same moisture that people are exhaling, I'm inhaling. It feels really much more intimate. I know it totally does to me too. Um, and I, w- I may re-examine that, but mm-hmm. I'm literally flying. <laughs> I, I think I will probably try the train from Philly to New York. because it's mm-hmm. just Well, that's easy event. enough. You can't it's, fly from Philly to New York. That is too bougie that you cannot. It's almost, well, it's a waste of time. It's like <laughs> that you're adding two hours by flying. So well, true. and also just, you know, full disclosure, y'all, I'm in the Philadelphia airport is fairly close to where I am. 
actually stay in Philly. And so it doesn't feel like that much of a stretch to be like, I'm going to take like a 20 minute ride. Yeah, but you know airport. what's not close? Well, LaGuardia is close to me. If you're No, nothing here. about your New York travel. Yeah, but you, you fly into Kennedy. Well, that's your day. <laughs> yeah, flying into New York is just yeah. awful. Can, can we talk about why you all haven't figured that out? What is wrong Honey, with you? 8 million people live there. here. What do, you, what do you want? You want a runway like right down Fifth Avenue? What are you supposed yes! to do? That sounds great. <laughs> Fools. What I actually <laughs> want is a train that goes directly to the airport quickly from like base, you know, like 34th Street straight to the airport. The only reason we need to develop hovercrafts is to quickly shuttle people to the airport. Like, honestly, <laughs> the airport is such an ordeal. Speaking of travel ordeals, Jason was just in Florida with his kids, which we had a conversation- we had a, a conversation, me and Jason had a conversation offline before she went, he went on this vacation. And I was like, I don't know why anybody wants to take their kids to Florida theme parks. Yeah. Which so Jason, how'd go? it go? The, the famous one, Disney? <laughs> so yeah, we did two days Disney, two days Universal. It was our four kids plus a friend from my son, because otherwise he would just get on my, get on our three girls nerves the whole time. So yeah, we just, it was, uh, we drove to Orlando. Um, so it was 15 hours down. 15 hours back, two days of, you know, four days of parks, one day by the pool. It was great though. I mean, it was, it, it's one of those things that feels, I feel, face. I feel <laughs> both. Yeah, no, Trisha, your face is, it, that's fair. There were moments like that. I mean, um, I'm just looking at you in admiration because I'm like, you're a parent because you loved it. I did. I did. You know what though? And I, the, the friend that we brought, his mom was like, oh my God, I can't believe you are taking, you know, five kids. I was like, I was a principal and we took like 80 kids on plane rides. Oh, like, but they're not but, your kids. That's Let's true. Let's be that's clear. True. That is and true. You're, that is and different. you're getting paid. I've taken hordes <laughs> of kids to various things. And when I got frustrated, I was like, you know what? Direct deposit. It's going directly into my bank account. <laughs> Can I just admit that I've, I've been fired maybe twice in my life the first time? was from a summer camp after taking the kids to the zoo. Or oh, that sounds like a good story. Can that be one of our topics? I've I never t- heard I this story. That. And we're going to hear it after we're done recording. I want <laughs> to hear that story. Oh, but anyway, me. Jason, so you didn't lose any kids. That's fine. I, so, nope. but you, okay, I'm going to ask this question without judgment. You enjoyed yourself? Oh, I tried to ask, but it didn't work. It didn't work. It was dripping with judgment. Did you? But did you? No, most of the time, I really enjoyed myself. I love marching them around the theme park, going to the cool ride, getting on a roller coaster together. I, I really enjoyed most of it. There were moments when I was like done. And thank God I have like a great wife. Like, well, it was, I think most of the time we had good weather. And then the, well, the last night at Universal, it was pouring rain. Oh, bummer. And you know, it's like, we're not leaving because we paid all this money and we drove all this way. So I don't care how hard it's raining. We will stay in this park and we will do the damn thing. But so like, I'm soaking wet. I'm carrying the backpack. My shoulders a little sunburned. So like, I feel, I feel like the straps like digging into my sunburn. It was, there was a moment where I was like, okay, I'm done. I need someone to just like take me home. But you most know, of the time it was great. You know, it's so funny about you. In that moment, you totally retreated into parent. We are staying. I, I don't know. care how uncomfortable we are. We've spent money. That was that like triggered so many moments in my mind. The second thing, though, I was cu- I'm curious about though is um so like aside from the parent pieces, like how was the actual experience? Like, were there lots of lines? Are a lot of people out there? Going? I mean, like I don't know. Are people up and ready to vacation now? <laughs> You know, it's Florida, so I have a feeling they've been up oh, and yeah, vacationing true. the whole time. <laughs> you know, that's Funny. interesting, though. So I will say generally, 
Disney, I think, handled it really well. Like mm -hmm. they limited, they limited how many people could be there. You had to make a reservation and they capped it. We actually, we didn't go to the Magic Kingdom or um, Hollywood Studios because there were no, there were no spots left. So like oh. that was very sane being at Disney. Universal was frustrating. It was way overcrowded. The lines were crazy. No I masks, mean, distancing, right? give me a break. It was nuts. No masks. There were very, I mean, very, very few masks. We, I mean, we, you know, we made the kids wear masks indoors, like when we went into like a building for a ride. But yeah, for the most part, no masks. Universal was very frustrating. Like I'm not, this was my third time at Universal with my kids. And the past two times we loved it. After this time, like I'm not eager to go back. That's fine. You've been there three times. I love, so I you know fine. what? I have to remind myself, do I like theme parks? It's been a while. I mean, there was like one family vacation where I think we all went Bush Gardens when we were kids. Maybe we went, no, um, we went to Disney World, Disneyland about like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. We had a great day. Remember? I feel like I think I like, I think I like theme parks with like my friends. Like if yeah. I, I think it depends on who you're going with because oh. so much of your time in a theme park is spent in lines. Yeah. yeah. Don't so take kids. Like, Don't so take you got to take people who you're going to like <laughs> enjoy chatting with for the whole day. Yeah. Like, so, and then you brought like, you brought catchphrase, I think. So we played yeah. catchphrase in line. Like we had a great time. Like, that's like the key to it, actually. Oh, and I also I didn't mean I didn't even share this. You, you asked what we're up to. I went to a Juneteenth celebration. Oh, was that? oh that's cool. Yeah, we had it. You know, it was blackity black. I love it. I we love had, that. I mean, it was blackity black in the ways that it's probably not okay to say out loud. But we had dominoes. We had um, um, watermelon, oh, which God, is fantastic God. and lovely. Don't even complain about it because you know I love my fruit. Did you have fried chicken and menthol cigarettes too? Come I on. mean, yeah. I. Wish no, we did one better. We had amazing mac and cheese. Amazing mac Great. and cheese. I mean, multiple mac and cheese. And uh, just really quickly, what have I been up to? Not much. Please, no, don't I'm even gonna, lie. Because we can't even reach you, so you must be busy. No, I am. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. The reason we haven't recorded is me. I'm super busy. I'm super busy. You know, I work in summer camps. Summer is coming. I work in a middle school, the school year is over. Both those two things were happening at the same time. It's been really brutal. I've been really sick. You know, me and Trisha went to Mexico a couple of weeks ago. I don't want to get too graphic, but let's just say that Montezuma's revenge, he's furious, okay? Um, oh, is that, did you get, is that you, did you get that fixed? You want to go to the doctors? You all nope, now? I did not get it fixed. Oh. So I'm still, well, let's just, you're, leave. Such let's travel, just... you're such a travel cliche. You are such a guy. Um, dear listener, I won't explain why. Poor belly. I won't explain why, but there are things they tell you not to do when you travel. Okay, now you make it sound salacious. It's not like I was, <laughs> I, I didn't scoop any liquid out of a toilet. I just, I, we were in the square and this guy was selling drinks. <laughs> And I was like, oh, that drink looks so cool. It was like in a big terrine with strawberries. I was like, oh, I'm going to get some. And I was like, Trisha, you want any? She's like, no. Uh, and I should have been team Trisha because I was like, oh, this is so tasty. I drank the whole thing. And my life literally has never been the same since. <laughs> you literally has, has I get, not you know been what? the same we were, Mexico City was like home to us like we felt so at ease there he let his guard down I, yeah, I let my guard down for one second I've been paying for it for four weeks <laughs> four weeks I mean I, I was like I don't even know if that guy and, you know and I turned back to look at the cart after I bought it and it like disappeared in a puff of smoke and like a sinister <laughs> laugh 
Okay. <laughs> you were targeted. I was targeted by like some evil magician. It was oh, actually very oh. comic. It's like, I'm going to turn his insides into liquid. <laughs> okay. That was gross. That was gross. That was gross. Okay. Let's move on to our final topics of season five. So a couple of weeks ago, Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, Opus in the Heights uh, was released to theater starring the incomparably hot Anthony Ramos amidst some other people who aren't as hot as he is. The story follows different characters in Washington Heights, which is a heavily Dominican neighborhood here in New York City. It is a real place that exists. And it's just about their trials and travails, et cetera. Well, the movie, which was hotly anticipated and has been in, not in production, but it has been on its way to being produced for I think the past nine or 10 years, now, when it landed, it hasn't flopped, but there was a lot of criticism being levied at Lin-Manuel Miranda and the team for one, erasing dark-skinned Afro-Latino people from the film, and also the fact that the, hom- the Latinx homogeneity of the film not only does it not exist, but it's dangerous to think about all Latin cultures to be equal uh, in this way, as far as re- both representation, but also as far as like their values and politics and cultures align. So I wanted to talk a little bit about if you've seen the movie, if you've not seen the movie, your reactions to either the movie or the criticism of it. So so I did, I did watch it. I had never seen it on Broadway. I do remember hearing lots about it when it was on Broadway. I did not, I'll just start by saying I did not particularly care for it, but I'm just not much of a musical person. I really like Rent. I really like Hamilton. And then there's not much else I like in the musical world. Um, so I didn't that find it all bad, that though. interesting. Congrats. That's yeah, no, I know. I know. They're, they're good ones to like. <laughs> so I didn't care for it that much. I definitely, I thought it was very visible, the extent to which all of the main characters are pretty light skinned. And what I find interesting about it is that, you know, as you said, Chris, and I've known, I, I, I don't know if you remember, Chris, I'll, I'll, a quick tangent. I told you, you won't, you won't get me to shut up now. But when you used to live at NYU and I used to come up and visit you, I had a roommate at the time who had a good friend who lived in Washington Heights. And so Every time we would come up, we would drive all the way up to George Washington Bridge. I would drop her off mm-hmm. in Washington Heights and then drive down to NYU. I mean, that was like, that was our routine. So I know that's a very heavily Dominican uh, community. And, you know, the Dominican Republic, I'm not going to say this about Dominicans in general, but Dominican Republic as a country has had a very unfortunate nasty history when it comes to race and darker skinned people and Haitians. Um, and so it was really disappointing to see... I don't know that that the neighborhood, um, the way it was represented, all of the main characters again were very light skinned. You did not see much in the way of African features, and I, what a missed opportunity! I know, and I'm sure we'll get into this. I mean, part of the criticism, as you were saying, Chris, is like you have all these other uh, Latinx community, you know, cultures represented, which there are those communities in that neighborhood, um, but you would think that Lin Manuel is, you know, his family's from Puerto Rico, where there may not, I'm sure there's colorism everywhere, but doesn't have quite the nasty history the Dominican Republic has with race. It just seemed like, wow, like why, why would we miss this opportunity? Why wouldn't you have more Afro Latinx uh, actors in the roles? It's just mm-hmm. like, if you go to Washington Heights, you see lots of African features. Why wouldn't we see that among the Latinx characters in the movie? That was, it was upsetting. 
I didn't see the movie, and this is really striking because if Chris recalls, I really fell in love with the Heights. You they did. gave out like a sampler four song CD when we were living in New York, and I never got a chance to see the musical, but I did run that CD into the ground. Ooh, did you? Um, <laughs> I really did. And so, but weirdly enough, I will say I wasn't excited to see it. I just didn't, there wasn't anything about it that looked really compelling to me. And I was surprised by that because I generally like Lynn Manuel. So then I was thinking about the reaction to the movie and I'm wondering why does this not resonate in the way that say Hamilton did, right? Like you took Hamilton and you you essentially basically cast black people in quote unquote white roles. And that really seemed to generate just the right kind of orientation that you would want to have. But some, and so in some ways it felt like he was making a mindful and thoughtful choice there by actively engaging folks of color in a world that they didn't exist in. It sort of changed the narrative in a really thoughtful way, Mm -hmm. giving him basically maybe more credit than was due in thinking that he was actually having this kind of interesting contextual conversation with racism and colorism and all that kind of stuff. So then when you see this movie come out, it just kind of flattens everything he did in Hamilton in my mind. Because now it makes me question. Like, I was like, wait, were you not interrogating those kinds of things? (laughs) Or were you basically selling the American story to immigrants and to folks for whom it hasn't really worked? So were you just mythologizing America for us in a palatable way? And he's doing it again within the Heights. He is yes. mythologizing America in a, in, a, in a palatable way. I did see the movie and I want to be really clear about this. I want to be very clear about this. This movie is okay. It's yeah, okay. Sure. While you're sitting and watching it, you're going to have a great time because it's beautiful. The people in it are beautiful. The shots of the neighborhood, some of it's a set, but the shots of the neighborhood are beautiful. Um, if you've never been up to Washington Heights, it really is a beautiful, vibrant neighborhood. Great. That said, this isn't a movie review. We're not talking about that. The movie's fine. It's a little boring. I, I didn't see the stage so either, but the choices, some of the narrative choices they made, I just feel like didn't work. Right now, a week after seeing it, I'm struggling to remember the different plot lines. There aren't really plot lines. That's part of it, there which, which is not necessarily a critique. If you want to do a portrait of a neighborhood, you can do that, but there there aren't really plot lines. No, there aren't really plot lines. And the ones that they do focus on, like I find I didn't really care about. I What I'm struck with is... In this post-Trump moment, you know, we had an entire discussion over the, in the last two election cycles about how Latinx people, which, and I want to say, because we've been using the term Latino and Latinx a lot, like, and I have been, I've been talking to uh, people who are Latino um, about these terms. And it's just what I've been hearing from people is that they don't feel this is a great term because it's sort of just lumping in dozens of countries and cultures together. Like, you know, as my Mexican friend said to me, like, imagine if we just called you all North Americaners and we expected that you and the people in Greenland and the people in Northern Canada and the people in like the Yucatan all had similarities. You don't. Um, so I, I want to be really clear about the, the, the words that we're using and what we understand that there's history connected to it. Yeah. So we had an entire discussion about how um, these cultures are different around the election cycle about how they care about different things, about how they vote in different ways. And there's historical reasons why they vote in different ways. And we really drove that point home. So when this movie arrives and presents a palatable Washington Heights, palatable in that the people are very light-skinned, in that, you know, they are the stereotypical uh, Latino, they are hardworking, 
they're musical, they're family oriented. These are all great things. That's fine. I'm not trying to take that away from anybody. But I think when coupled with the idea that also you're all very similar in one of the final numbers where they decide they're going to have a big fiesta, they're having a big party and everyone's out there with their flags and the the Mexican people are dancing, the Puerto Rican people are dancing, the blink if you miss it, there's a Jamaican flag there, which I thought was like, oh, there's a nod to something, but it's like half a second. I feel as if that isn't helpful in today's society. I feel like if this movie had been made when they had started working on it years ago in the Obama moment, it would have landed in a society that was ready to accept, hear, hear those, the themes. But now I just feel like we've moved a little too far afield. We've moved past this. And that's what was really surprising to me. I don't know, forget about the fact that this, this, um, Listener, I always do this. I always want to call Washington Heights the Dominican Republic, but that is sort of underscores the point that I want to make next, which is like, I understand that he's presenting a Washington Heights that doesn't exist because if you've been to Washington Heights, it is very Dominican. I'm not saying that Puerto Ricans and Colombians don't live there, but it is very much Dominican. You know, so I, I can get past the fantasy part, but all I just can't get past is the homogenizing of these cultures. I think that is... This is a cultural artifact, like sitting on shelves in, oh, I almost said Blockbuster because I'm old, but you know, sitting on Paramount Plus, wherever you can find this for people to like check in with later. I just feel like it's going to be a bad education. You know, and I think that's the thing, right? I think this is the thing is like this movie was conceived of during an t- entirely different time. And I think in our- The show was conceived of in an entirely yeah, different time. Yeah. In our previous discussion about Hamilton, I think we hit on that which is that it was a, it really reflected a very specific conceptualization that we had of what could possibly be an opportunity to bring quote unquote people together. Like, could we like subsume ourselves under like an American myth in which you can see yourself in it? And I think that was something that really emerged in like the Obama era, right? It was this idea that we too are America kind of like gravitas, but it was an America that was mm-hmm. going to be not about your particular tradition, but about like a subsuming and wiping away that tradition into this like glorified singular narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think the singular narrative of like Lin-Manuel and um, just didn't hold up well. And it's like, I think that that's actually what I'm, I think that's what we all have to come to terms with. But as you've just pointed out, and I remember we talked, I think we recommended many moons ago, a a podcast about a code switch podcast about the creation of the Latinx identity, which was this idea of trying to actually find a unifying theme across these, this, these groups of people so they can be conceived of as a strong voting block. That was one part of that narrative was just like, but then of course, 2016 and 2020 told us they're not even really a voting block in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the narrative is far more complex and complicated. And I guess that's really ultimately the punchline, I think, for In the Heights is like people are looking for more complex narratives now. It's like they don't want to sweep everything under the rug. They don't want this like one unified theory of who Latinx people are, particularly if it's just going to be light-skinned people. That just feels kind of messy. <laughs> Jason. I don't, I don't know if I have much um, more to say. I, I'll point out though, um, 
I'm a little hesitant because I was a little bit calling out my my family. But um, what I found it interesting, so the only I wasn't excited to see it either. It didn't seem that interesting to me. But my wife really wanted to see it, and she called over her cousins, and so I watched it with you know several Haitian Americans, and I thought it was interesting that like you, as you pointed out, Chris, like you see flags of different Latin American and Caribbean cultures, even Jamaica flag, but Haiti is completely absent. <laughs> Which I oh, found like, snap. which shares an island with <laughs> Dominican Republic. That. They're on the same island, literally. <laughs> um, but they weren't offended; just I was. So. Oh yeah. snap! I mean, but, maybe there's a there's a. I mean, and I think there was a little bit of a call out. I think the thing that's been interesting is that people have actually been very receptive to the movie. I will say that I've seen the critiques on um, across media. People will said exactly what you said, Chris. I, while you're sitting there, you're enjoying it, but there is an awareness that something is missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, but I think the challenge for movies like this always is that you can't critique them suddenly. Like suddenly you can't raise like a valid critique of this movie because then they're afraid that the numbers will tank and they they only gave us one movie this was our shot that was a little bit of the narrative i saw coming out which i really push back on i you know i think i think that's us buying into this idea that there's only one acceptable kind of story that needs to be told and then we have to just kind of swallow it whole even if we don't love it and it's I what just, we got so what are you know what are we gonna do i just don't i, I don't I know think I don't know if you heard Rita Moreno's comments on Stephen Colbert. Uh, She brought it up in the interview. She brought it up. Have you heard about this? What they're saying about Lin-Manuel Miranda? Uh, She's like, it's ridiculous. Like, okay, maybe there weren't a lot of Doxian people, but like, can you, can we just wait a second? I mean, basically she was like saying like, just wait, your time is going to come. But right now this is our time, which I guess she thought was sort of, was going to be like soothing, but instead it just, it just sharpened the division that people were complaining yeah. about. Yeah. Um, she since, you know. It, given her own career. Because if you think about the fact that she had to darken her skin mm-hmm. in West Side Story, reflecting the fact that they should have chosen a dark skin actress. And also now reflecting the fact that she, at the time, people thought of Puerto Ricans a certain way and the way that mm-hmm. she was an actual Puerto Rican was not palatable to the public. So exactly. for now, it's a come around the other way and for her to be so ignorant of that is just really upsetting. I'm a huge fan of Rita Moreno. It wasn't a shining moment for her. On one hand, I'm disappointed, but I also understand it because I think that that's what happens when you feel like you have, um, there's a limited set of opportunities available. And I think that's exactly what she was feeling like. Lin-Manuel is one of the good ones. Yeah. He's one of the good ones. Don't, don't slam him because guess what? He's building careers for all of y'all. All of y'all folks of color, he's building them. Yes, it may not be the folks of color you'd love to see, which is the dark ones, but guess what? It is folks of color. You know what I mean? And I think that that's, we've all heard versions mm-hmm. of that. Like, yeah, that's a, this is a very typical kind of generational tension, Absolutely. I feel like, that you see. I mean, she's in her 80s. I mean, in terms of generational tension, do you not see, you see that's like age-based, right? Yeah, I think even even in like the civil rights movement, like there, were, there was that tension between the kind of, um, I don't know, the, I hate to say the establishment, but like the old, the, and I don't want to say old guard, but you know, they're like, there's, all, I, I just feel like there's always kind of generational tension between like, look, we had this really hard, we're getting to this point, let's celebrate that. And then there are younger people are like, no, that's not good enough. Like we shouldn't settle for that. Yeah, I just think that we, um, Chris, you're right. The receptivity of the, of In the Heights just 
backwards it like 10 years. Drop yeah. that like seven 10 years, years ago. ago. 10 right years ago. Right after Obama. Right yeah. after Obama. Or during Obama. Obama. Right like yep. in that moment, when we go back to look at it, like culturally as an artifact, it would make yep. sense. We'd look and be like, oh, this movie came out in 2013. Oh, okay, well that makes sense because that's where we are. The fact that it came out in 2021, when people look, when people in 2020, when people in 2029, 2035, look at this movie and what it has to say about Caribbean and Latin American cultures and place it in time, they're gonna be like, huh, it's gonna be, it's gonna be a little confusing and it sets it back. We, it's hard to see that now, but it absolutely will. Um, and that's, that, we're gonna have to contend with that. Um, so I applaud all the criticism because I think that will also enter the cultural museum when we talk about this 15 years from now. I really hope it does. Um, all Can right. we just say how amazing that is though? This is our ongoing theme. Hmm. Our ongoing theme has always been about art like the role of art in reflecting the times yeah. and also the tensions. And we are basically saying, give us this movie 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, cause it makes sense 10 years ago. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, you, there's all sorts of movies you can't make about say, there's like Ace Ventura that really quickly that I'm going to move on. Cause I don't want to get too far afield, but Ace Ventura, the whole gag of that film is that the bad person is a trans woman and she has a penis yep. and it's a whole sight gag where everyone in the cast like vomits when it's revealed. Now this is regrettable even today, but we can look at Ace Ventura in the time that it was at and be like, Oh, this is where we were in trans representation on screen. If that movie got made today, yeah. it wouldn't make sense. It just wouldn't. And that's my criticism in the Heights. We're just past yeah. that. We're past no. the moment. Okay. So moving on, we want to talk about, um, the workplace for people of color. Trisha, can you introduce this? I just saw something that said only 3% of folks of color want to return back into physical spaces, office spaces um, on the job. What is going on there? What is that telling us about um, workplace culture, the toxicity that is there, um, hidden or in, in the form of microaggressions, some maybe macroaggressions for real. Because um, again, we are still in the midst of a pandemic. And even though we actually are vaccinating as many people as possible, there's still swaths of the population that are actually not vaccinated. And because not because they don't want to, but actually because it just hasn't happened for them. So, um, so let's be real about the context of that. But then Chris and I started to think about some of the topics that we've been sort of bandying back and forth and the topic of Naomi Osaka and her workplace environment issue came up last time because Naomi Osaka is the, if you all know, the tennis player who said she was having mental health issues and wanted to kind of avoid one of the most toxic aspects of the job, which is press conferences and she, received not quite the kind of reception that she would want. And so marrying but, and, but that- It's important to also underscore that she was punished on top of yes. that. Okay. We can talk about that, but so, so marrying those two things, um, we have a very public discussion about workplace environments from um, a very well-regarded um, black athlete or athlete of color um, more broadly, because let's not um, ignore the fact that she's also half Japanese. But then the other thing is, so then I just wanted to talk, we want to talk about this. Let's unpack this a little bit. Why don't black folks want to go back to the office? What's, what's hidden at the office or not so hidden at the office? Um, and what does this mean? What does this mean for us as we sort of contemplate how we might create new workplace environments that are um, more welcoming to all 
kinds of people, not just folks of color. Because I, I suspect that this is also probably a challenge for um, folks with disabilities who are also people of color. I'm, you know, I'm just putting these broad categories out there. So your initial impressions, um, Jason and Chris, when you heard that, not too surprising, surprise, what? <laughs> I was shocked, 3%. I mean, I wanna talk about Jason's reaction because we were talking about this before, Jason was not at all shocked, but I was shocked. <laughs> That it was 3%. It just seems so low. That's almost no Black people who work in office spaces want to return to the office spaces. That says something so powerful culturally that we should all like stop, like look up and be like, damn, what <laughs> is going on? 3% isn't 13. You know, it's certainly not 30. Like it's like 3% of people want to return. That's, I don't know. So that was my reaction. It's outrageous. And you know, the connection to Osaka is sort of like, what is going on in these workspaces? What is, it's systemic, right? What is going on in these workspaces that is making it so painful for people of color to exist in them? Jason? Well, yeah, so I mean, the reason why I think I wasn't shocked when I when I first heard it, when you first shared it, Tricia, is when I was at the U.S. Department of Education, there was a big, I don't know, battle going on around telework. Mm -hmm. And telework had been promoted very heavily for a time. And then um, when I was there, there was a push to, to limit it or to lessen it. And there was a lot of pushback about that. And I don't think I fully appreciate it. I, first of all, I'll say I still don't. I don't claim to fully understand all the dynamics, but um, I can just remember thinking, and I'll admit this is my like, you know, straight white, non-disabled male perspective. I was just like, I don't know, especially in an environment like the federal government, why you wouldn't want to be there in person if for no other reason than for career advancement, like you want to kind of be in people's faces. Like you want them to think of you to, when they think about who's getting a raise, who's getting promoted. And now, like, I think I feel much more sensitive. I, again, I don't claim to fully understand it, but much more sensitive to there may be lots of reasons that says something that like, even if you're like, well, I probably have a better shot at a promotion if the boss saw me every day, but I am so uncomfortable at work that I'm willing to forsake that. And, you know, for the opportunity to work at home and not be in the environment, I'd love to know whether this disaggregates by who runs the place, right? Like if it's a black owned business or a black run business. You know, 3%, there, 3 no. tells you no. it doesn't matter. I suspect no, because you know, you know what? what? Yeah. There's, a, there's a narrative about what an effective work environment should look like. And, and a lot of people adopt it, right? Regardless of race, I think sometimes in the leadership position. What I like about working from home personally, and to your point, Jason, is that you get to be judged on not your, the content of your interactions, but actually your work product. Like, I think I'm, that's one of the things I've actually really embraced as a consultant is the idea that I don't, you don't need to know how I get the labor done. If I need to deliver a product to you, you just get to evaluate the delivery of that product. And in a strange way, the kind of like racialized and gendered overtones that happens in a work environment can be decreased by me just like presenting a product with to you. Um, you don't have to evaluate, did I say hello in the morning? Did I chit chat for coffee? Did I make the right smiles when you showed pictures of your kids? Like all of those other kinds of behaviors, which I think is all part and parcel of like the office environment and the work culture, which people don't really tag in on. 
don't get to come into the mix now. Like that's what I think is so kind of liberating. And what really gets me is that historically folks of color are not gonna be in the position and probably moving forward of making this decision of choosing not to work from home. Do you know what I mean? This is not a choice that we have. The pandemic forced us to have this choice. But I think moving forward, if we could, I think black people would be like, can we figure out a way to make this happen? Can we negotiate this? <laughs> can we talk about whether I need to physically show up to get the work done for you? I wish that we could be afforded that flexibility. You know what is hitting me like a ton of bricks right now? It's what Jason just said. The fact that like, you know, there's sort of a knowledge that like, oh, if I go to work every day and the boss sees me, it's just, it's just one more way that having and having not is separated by race. Because you think about people were asked the question, right? They've never been asked this question before because we never had this, this sort of worldwide event before. But what this means is that 97% of black people were uncomfortable in their workspaces. You have to imagine that some of those people just decided to abandon those workspaces and therefore um, they abandoned the opportunities that could be afforded if they did just stick it out and put up with all the macro and microaggressions to get the promotion. So you can see in yet another way that wealth inequity uh, is reinforced, right? Because there's something toxic about these work environments and it's having direct economic effects. It's really upsetting. And so the question is like, where do we, oh God, oh, now I'm depressed. The question is- <laughs> I don't think it has to be. <laughs> I mean, I, I, well, let's, 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 let's be, let's be honest though. Let me, I wonder, I mean, I wonder what this question would be revisited to maybe the dominant culture. In isolation, this statistic seems very dire, but if we found out that only 6% of white people were to work, then maybe it's not a conversation about race. It's a conversation about our workplace culture. I mean, um, there's a little bit of that too. I, su yeah. I suspect it's both. Because it's all about who's in the leadership positions in these organizations. And you're what? generally probably more comfortable if you're in a dominant role. Mm -hmm. Like if you get to control the narrative of the space. Actually, one of my, as you know, my favorite sociologists, one of her contention about why you see a lot of sort of like white folks freaking out during the pandemic was because they didn't actually have the opportunity to, to revisit this power trip that can happen in these spaces, right? It's like, you didn't get to dominate those spaces in the way that you normally did um, and do have in the past. And so I won't, I won't assume that all folks had a problem with the workplace culture, but I do think that workplace culture is generally problematic anyway. Mm -hmm. And then particularly for the most vulnerable among us, which are always folks of color mm. and working class people. So, <laughs> I mean, but, but I, I, I don't know. Like I want us to unpack the lessons learned from the pandemic and actually internalize them moving forward. But we are, we're so quick to kind of return to the previous time that I don't think we're gonna take that in. And I want us to take that into consideration. I want us to, cause people were also more productive so maybe that should be a signal. I know how capitalist society loves productivity. So we could defend it through productivity. <laughs> we could defend saying, hey, let your employees come up with a workplace paradigm that works the best for them. You know, I, I'm thinking about what you said, Trisha, particularly about the evaluation, like being evaluated on, you know, quality of work product, which of course, ideally that's how everyone would get evaluated. I'm not sure I've seen that done well anywhere. <laughs> um, like, I think to not have a culture where, you know, kind of squeaky wheel gets the grease, um, 
it requires pretty robust and deliberate evaluation. I haven't seen that done well, really. I don't know where to go with that. I think that's, um, that's a challenge. I'm not sure uh, how to solve. I mean, maybe it's a good challenge. Maybe this forces us to come up with better evaluation systems. But I, f- I feel like the knee-jerk reaction is to just have seniority as the driver for um, advancement, salary, et cetera. But I think we've also seen how that can lead to dysfunction. So mm-hmm. I don't know, just, it, it opens up some really interesting and difficult questions. Well, you know what? They're not even questions that I have. I mean, I've been thinking about them for a while because you know we all work in education. And so we all talk about the fact that education is supposed to be a driver of economic growth and upward mobility. That's what we've been, that's what we sold our kids. That's what we sold kids of color. That's what we sold people of color and parents of color, right? And so what I often say when I'm having this conversation in these spaces is I'm like, we are going to go get those degrees because the degrees is what allows us to get in the door. But if you are gonna evaluate us on things that are outside of our control, which is whether our tone of voice hits you the wrong way, whether we're wearing our hair a certain way, whether we're smiling when you talk about your husband or your mates, like all of those things are part and parcel of the workplace culture that I actually actively despise. Because I can see if you, I can see folks thrive based on how well they perform those things, regardless of the content of their work. And that's always been a challenge for me because when I work with people, I will say to them, I don't even have to like you, but are you delivering good work products? That is a huge thing for me. I don't love anyone that I work with in that way because I try not to get into those battles because I really want it to be about workplace product. But can I tell you, that is a rare thing. People no, that's, are that's a wanting very... to employ folks that they want to go oh. hang out with. with people, fear, you know, like... people are like, oh, this is my work people. They're, we're like a family. You're not like a family because you can't fire people from your family. There's not HR for your family. I've heard uh, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, I've, I've heard him actually say, like, you know, I've been with him in person a couple of times. And one of their, um, I don't know if it's a value or how they define it, but is team, not family. And they're yeah. very explicit about that. Like we are a team, but we're not. And it, he said well, exactly God. what you just said, Chris. He said exactly what you just said. You don't fire people from your family. We have to fire people sometime if they don't, you know, get their job done on and the You team. know what's funny about that? What Hastings got right right there is that is a signal to the rest of the company that this is a workplace. Yep. This is a workplace and we do work here. Because even just saying we do have to fire people from time to time doesn't make it a sort of like an apologetic thing. That's that I don't know. I, I love Except the idea. Except you know of work why it's apologetic? Work. Because people know that I know and see people getting fired for reasons that are beyond the product that they they create. And that's always sure. my challenge at work is like when you create a work environment where it's about sort of this strange collegiality that gets defined by senior leadership which is, do you like going out for cocktails? Like, it's just weird things. Like that, the cultural mix gets defined in ways that often are really tr- difficult for, I, I mean, for me as a black woman, sometimes it's just really difficult. I'm like, okay, so wait, is it now time for us to do that thing where we talk about our weekends and we talk about yeah, how this is? Can and I like, not? But and if then, you don't, you know, then you're cold. Yeah, or like, am I supposed to invite you to my baby shower? But like, you know, one of the things that, and then this is probably generational. When I was raised, we were taught that work was work and your personal life was your personal life. And that you don't need to mix the two. And as black people, we were told that was essential. At least for me, it's like, don't mix that. 
because they don't understand our lives outside of work and mm-hmm. you might be judged and evaluated accordingly because you might get too comfortable and spill some things and say some things. And I guess that that's just like one of those things that I just don't think we talk about and unpack about and workplace culture. I want to say, again, and wrapping this up, I want to say like, I worked in an office space where when I got there, there was something like 80 employees. Like it wasn't a small place. Like the first week I was there, someone went around and said, oh, we're collecting money for so-and-so's baby shower. And I was like, we're, we do that? There's <laughs> 80 people here. You know what I mean? And a lot of them are women. So what is this tax that I have to pay because I work with 80 people? Like that feels outrageous. And then one of the supervisors who wasn't my direct supervisor, but like he was also gay. So he asked me to lunch one day. I wasn't in a position to say no. And I don't know if he recognized that. He was my super, he was not my supervisor, but he was on the team of supervisors. Yeah. So then we had to go to lunch and I had to make small talk. And the whole time I had to be super careful about what I'm saying while yeah. he's just having a big old time. Like, oh, uh, it's so good to sit with you. I'm like, yes, sir. Yes, 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 sir. Yes. You know, and I'm like, yes. I'm like, he's like, so tell me a little bit about you. And I'm like, okay, let me whip out the sanitized version of Chris that is available to talk about. I'm really uncomfortable. I'm trying not to eat because I don't want to appear sloppy. Like, it's just such, there's so much thought that goes into that. And this is one, and one of the ways, everything you said, Trisha, I'm not going to restate it because you said it perfectly. Everything you said about the workplace, like it doesn't, it caters to the majority culture and not everybody else. It's really, I mean, it isn't a surprise that only 3% of black people want to return to that if they are being successful with their work product at home. In wrapping this up, this has been something that I've been meditating on every single day. And you both probably heard me say this. All are welcome here is a very different vibe than this was created with you in mind. To sum up up what we're talking about with workspaces, it's one thing to be like, listen, you all signed a contract. It all says the same thing. You all got to do the same thing is really different than like the contracts you all signed. We recognize that that favors some people over others. Like we need to look at these contracts and really think about do women does this is this advantageous to women? Does it support women? Does it support queer people? Does it support people of color? Does it support disabled people? We need to think about that. And there's not enough of that going on, which is what really upset me about the Osaka situation. And getting back to what we were talking about as far as the workplace, this is why only 3% of black people want to return to work is because that work, that conversation isn't happening. Like how can we make this palatable for you? How can we create this space yeah. with you in mind? Well, that's just workplaces in general, right? Well, no, that's an equity lens, right? It's equality equality rather than equity. Well, you all have the same contract. Well, we have the same workplace for everyone. Well, that that doesn't meet everyone's individual. Yeah, everyone isn't in the same workplace. That's the point. All right, everyone. Let's move on to media recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced that you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. This is our season finale. So whatever you say now... It's what you're leaving with people for the summer. So I hope it's good. Trisha. <laughs> Don't start with me. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. Too late. For it. There she goes. Looking oh, around no. The room. She's looking around I know the I room. I left a book. She's grabbing know, a book. I know book. I have a book around here. <laughs> Look at it. Nope. She's putting that book back. Nope. She's settled on a book. Somewhere. Okay. Did you even no, read that I... book or are you just going to recommend it? <laughs> okay. So can I do? This is, this is, um, um, dear a friend of mine left this here yesterday. It's got a beautiful cover. <laughs> this has got a beautiful cover. Okay. But I, 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 I pulled this book up to read fully in Mexico City, remember? Oh my gosh, you bought it? <laughs> yes. 
Okay, talk about it. Talk about it. So I bought this lovely book. It called it's called Lessons from Plants. It's essentially a professor. She is a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology, Veranda Montgomery. And she's making sort of like this large claim that you can sort of evaluate animal behavior that are that are highly adaptive to their environment and maybe adopt some lessons for yourself as a human, right? (laughs) So look at basically like, look at how plants negotiate their world and maybe, you know, try to do the same thing. And so what's really cute about the book is I fully expected to finish it on my flight and I picked it up and I'm enjoying it, but I am desperately taking my time with the book because it just doesn't flow very quickly for me. Oh no, is this a <laughs> recommendation or an anti-recommendation? No, 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 no. The, the thing is great. So in keeping with the theme that we just had, one of her advice based on plants is assess your environment to see if it provides you what, what you need to grow and thrive. Mm. Oh, if it beautiful. does not, you should respond accordingly. You can either change your behavior or identify ways to increase elements that are fruitful in your environment. Mm-hmm. So that's a perfect example of a plant that doesn't have enough sun because of where you've placed it. So the plant leans to the light right. to get the sun. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and But what will happen is that plant will then forever have that lean right and so it's just this question of like are you being nurtured and supported and then pick apart that thing like what is nurturing you here push more for that and de-emphasize the thing because some plants do that and so another part that she says which I think is really great is she's like some plants work together so one plant will be like you want some sun I'm gonna let you lean into my light but do you mind if I suck some stuff from your from your root do you know so thinking again about sort of the collective experience similarly in a work environment that could be the thing when you Is come to the East person- Coast bring this book because I want to borrow it from you because I was we found this book together and I was intrigued by it but she was so intrigued she bought it I just took a picture of it but like <laughs> so bring it to me so I don't have to buy it yeah yeah I'll bring it to you so I actually do actively recommend it. Because I think it's the large, it's again, the theme, Lessons from Plants by Baranda Montgomery. The theme again is collectivism, people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's really the theme. That was, un- oh, that was an unusually story. strong recommendation, which was made at the last second. Jason, I hope you have prepared statements. I actually do. So I would like to, I, listeners may recall that I previously recommended two books in a three-part series. Oh, come. Bloom and Hatch. No, I have two. I have two. Okay. I have two. So just Because at this on. point, you just re- spent three episodes recommending this trilogy. <laughs> okay, okay, but now I finished the third one, and it is phenomenal. I love the whole wow, thing. So this is right. Thrive by mm-hmm. Kenneth Opel. Really good, really good trilogy. Young adult fiction, but just phenomenal. And then the other thing, which I'm recommending coming out of my trip to Florida, is that we we went to the Magic Eye Theater in Epcot to see the, they do like these short films. There is a short film, which I think I actually had seen before, but I don't think I fully appreciated it. And it's called Get a Horse. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not well-versed enough in like animation and film to to do it justice, but it, it mixes really old Disney animation with very new. And it's one of these things where in a very short film, it says so much about technology and about how art has evolved and about how characters have evolved. It's just really interesting. You could look it up on YouTube and watch it pretty quickly. Although the thing about seeing it at Disney World is it's like the 3D plus the seats move and stuff. Yeah. And it, it's, it was quite an experience. Hmm. Okay, cool. Thank you. 
I am going to recommend a show which is on HBO Max that's called Hacks, starring Gene Smart. Hacks is a uh, so far it's one season. It's a they call it a dark comedy, which well, let's talk about what dark comedy means. But anyway, the story is about a, a an older comedian, a woman, sort of in the vein of a Joan Rivers type, not necessarily in content of the jokes, but in sort of like longevity of her career. She's a Las Vegas residency. She's been doing this since like the seventies or eighties. And you know, her management decides that they should pair her with a young 25 year old female writer to sort of punch up her career a little bit. And then hilarity ensues. Uh, Jean Smart is a national treasure. And I refuse to argue about that. She is brilliant in this. The show is so funny and it's so poignant and it is, uh, it's just so much fun. It's just so much fun that they, they exist in this world in Vegas where they create all these characters, which you honestly care about. Like there's all these side characters that be like sort of move towards the middle and it's great. They're so set up for a season two. I think it was renewed for, renewed for a season two. This is something you can absolutely binge. The show is fantastic. I highly recommend it. I had a fantastic time watching it. And it's funny as hell. So funny. Yeah, so, people, good. that that accounts for the Gene Smart renaissance. Though. Yeah, Gene Smart. Well, you know, the thing is, because between Watchmen, the mayor of Easttown, and this, she is just knocking out of the park. Like, she's, they're calling her the queen of HBO. <laughs> well, and, just, I mean, I mean and, and we loved her from Design Women. I never saw Designing Women, but like oh, people- get into it. Really? Even now? I love that show. Yeah. yeah. I just, I it's think not show, too late? I think that show holds up. <laughs> it's not I too late. I think that show holds up. I mean, it's done. It's well, done. no, I know it's done. I just mean like some shows, like I wouldn't go back I and watch Webster now. Up. You know what I mean? Like some things don't hold up or different strokes. I think that but one like, might hold up. I think so. I mean, there's some weird, interesting elements around it, right? Because it's like four white women. Yeah. Um, and um, the black guy who works there. Yeah. And um, you know, um, but I don't. I have to go and look at it again. I don't think so. I mean, they were also Southern. So there are some weird nuances that play out I think that's why I was like, do I want to watch these four? Even when I, mean, I was younger, I was like, do I want to watch, watch these four? Watch season one. Maybe watch, maybe watch the first episode or so and see what I'll watch a couple. I'll watch a couple. See, see how yeah. it holds up. All right. Okay, everyone. So that's the end of season five. Congratulations to us. We, we did, did a fantastic <laughs> job. What? No, I can say it. I can say it. We did a fantastic <laughs> job. There were some production mishaps. There were some weeks in between episodes, but you know, it, for the most part, listener, you've been entertained and you can't even deny it because here you are listening to us. So we all <laughs> agree. made it this far. Yeah, we all agree. Season, five. season six is going to be so exciting. We're already working on some stuff and I cannot wait for you all to join us. Um, have a great summer, everybody. And you too. I'll see you soon. We're all going to get together. We should record something when we all get together. All right, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. But for, uh, on that note, everyone... Bye. Bye. Enjoy your summers. Bye.